back to Music Madness. As always, this is your host, Kent. Thank you so much for sticking with the podcast, continuing to listen. It really does mean a lot for me that you're here checking it out and continuing along this journey. We're now five weeks into our first theme, which is exploring Grammy-winning albums. We've been through four rounds, and we're down to our Elite Eight. Next week, we're going to be down to our final four, and then our finals after that. So this week, we're going to dive a bit deeper into our artists and bands. Where were they at in their career? Where'd they gone for success? What had they done prior, and what did they do a little bit afterwards? And then the week after, we're going to go track by track on our final four. We're going to talk a little bit about the songs, who wrote them, who performed on them, who did what with them, how well they charted and everything like that. In the final, we'll talk a little bit about the final two albums, the path they got to get there, who they beat. And then in the final, uh, we'll really kind of dive into um, the track that each of them took in order to get there, who they beat and what we've done through this experiment. Please don't forget to join our Discord server. We have some great conversation going on there about who should win. They're going to have some input on uh, what we do for our future themes as we keep on going. And uh, it's it's a lot of fun to kind of get to know some people on there and their musical taste. So please do join. What we're going to do today, because we have a lot of info to get through, I'm going to walk through the info on some of these albums. We're going to re- reveal the results. We're going to chat about next week's Matt week's matchups and then we're gonna we're gonna try and move on through to talk a little bit about what's coming ahead we're gonna start here in the modern bracket we had a number one versus a number two seed which is going to be the theme for the day our number ones and our number twos are really all that's left we have one number a couple number three seeds but really it's it's really high seeds is all that we got left for our number one seed we have michael jackson's thriller which won in 1984 versus number two adele's 21 which won in 2012 we're going to start by running through a little bit of information on Thriller, and then we'll dive into 21 from Adele. So Thriller was recorded in 1982. It was released in November of 1982, and that's how it won in 1984. If you remember from our last pod, we talked a little bit about eligibility for the Grammys, so it's always starting in October. feels like it's a little bit of an obvious statement, but Michael Jackson had been part of a Motown disco group with his other brothers called the Jackson Five prior to striking out on his own. He was born in 1958, started performing with those four brothers, Jackie, Tito, Jermaine, and Marlon in the mid-60s. I didn't know this, but his first live performance was in 1964 when he was six. The Jackson Five were discovered while they were singing talent shows. They signed for Motown Records, and they produced hits like I Want You Back, ABC, and I'll Be There. They were big stars already. He had already kind of done his own thing and was uh, pretty big. But he didn't start producing his own solo music until 1972 when he was 14. So in those eight years, he had already produced a lot of things and gone from that little kid to a, a preteen and an idol already. I didn't realize it was that early that he started doing his own things. He started doing more of the doo-wop Motown stuff and slowly progressed. His first two solo albums both came out in 1972. And were called Got to Be There and Ben. Both did all right, charting on the Hot 100 in 1973, though. He put out another album called The Music and Me. It didn't do very great. And it was his last Motown album. I think he kind of saw the writing on the wall that that wasn't his real way forward. He needed to differentiate a little bit. So in 1975, the Jacksons, the group, moved from the label Motown to Epic. Michael transitioned at the same time and really started putting out more R&B and pop music and put out his first real pop album called Forever Michael. It was really in 1979 with the album Off the Wall 
that he started to really become the king of pop that he was. It had four top 10 singles, including Don't Stop Till You Get Enough, Rock You. It was really when he transitioned and became who he became. According to his own biography, Michael thought that album should have done better. He never got it never got to number one and it did all right. But for his next album, he was going to go huge. He really wanted to go off. Michael said in a number of interviews that he wanted to create an album where every single song was a hit, a bangers only playlist, if you will. He had felt that his race may have held him back, so he had to go above and beyond. Fellow Grammy winner Quincy Jones was the producer on this album. The two of them accumulated 30 songs, recorded 30 tracks, and uh, put them together. They worked with members of the band Toto to produce and write some of the music. Toto's guitar player, Steve Luckather, played the rhythm guitar on Beat It, and Eddie Van Halen played the solo. So the... That's, that's Eddie. <laughs> on That Girl Is Mine, they brought in Paul McCartney to sing with him. So they went out and got another one of the finalists here from the Beatles to come in and, and and be part of this. So they really pulled out all the stops. They put in an amazing album. However, probably the biggest thing they did was they created music videos like they were movies. MTV had only just started in 1981. And up to that point, MTV had really only focused on rock music. The video for Billie Jean debuted on March 1983 and was the first video played on MTV by a black artist, which is kind of crazy. Two years, not a single black person on MTV. From then on, Jackson became known for his music videos. Um, Beat It came out three weeks later. It, it, was a, it was another huge hit, but then the really big one. In December of 1983, they premiered the 14-minute video for Thriller. In the video, Jackson and his girlfriend were chased around by zombies and eventually became monsters. Anyone born from the uh, years 1980 to 2000 has probably seen that video a hundred times. MTV and VH1 have named it as the greatest music video of all time. The Thriller video was actually played on national TV around Halloween in 1984 with a massive audience. MTV had to play that song's music video two times an hour because there was so much demand to see it. Got to be pretty nice for them when you can just knock off 28 minutes of your uh, programming by just playing one video twice. <laughs> the critics loved it. Cultural significance was massive. Up to that point, there had not been a single black superstar. Critics said he was the biggest thing since the Beatles and the biggest single artist since Elvis. Rolling Stones, on their uh, vaunted top 500 album list that I've mentioned a few times, lists this album as number 20 overall. Listeners loved it. On the RIA list, it had gone platinum 30 times, selling 30 million copies. However, it's estimated that around the globe, he sold 66 million albums, which is more than any other album ever. By all measures, it's the best-selling album of all time. This album really propelled Jackson into the stratosphere. He put out four more albums, Bad, Dangerous, History, and Invincible. The last one came out in 2001. But controversy and paparazzi really started to follow him everywhere, rightly so. He did die from a drug overdose in 2009 when he was just about to embark on a sold-out worldwide tour. So even in 2009, he had a massive following around the world. And Thriller's opponent is Adele's 21. Adele Laurie Blue Adkins was born in London in 1988. She was raised by a single mother, and she grew up writing and recording songs. 
In 2006, she graduated from high school, but as part of a class project, she had recorded a three-song demo and gave it to one of her friends. Her friend decided to turn around and upload it to MySpace, of all places, and it was discovered by a record producer at XL Recordings. It's crazy that an artist was actually found on MySpace, especially one as big as Adele. I remember scrolling through music on that site. Uh, back in the day and I had no idea that one of the biggest artists of the last 20 years was actually discovered off of that site the owners of that site must be kicking themselves because Instagram and TikTok have really become big about finding and driving musicians out to the masses but MySpace was there first and they really dropped the ball that's great I don't even think that site exists anymore Adele's first hit song was called Hometown Glory, which came out when she was 16. Even from the very first song, Adele's expressed her like melancholy, powerful, beautiful sound. You can really listen to this song and immediately know it's Adele. Based on this song, she won the BBC's number one predicted breakout artist award. And man, did they nail it. Her next song was called Chasing Pavement, and it was her first international hit. She then released the album 19 weeks after that. It's interesting for all four of her albums, she names it after the age she was when she wrote all the songs on the album. I'm actually kind of surprised no one else has ever done that because it kind of helps you understand who they are and when they were. She says it's because she's trying to be open with her fans and give them an insight into where she was at in her life. It's a pretty cool dynamic. The album 19 sold 22 million records according to the RIA, but another site says 7 million globally. So that was a pretty good start. Adele started working on her next album in 2009, but had a bit of writer's block until her then-partner broke up with her. Man, that dude had no idea what he did. He inspired her to create one of the biggest breakup albums of all time. He will be roasted into eternity. Rumor has it, rolling in the deep, set fire to the rain, and someone like you are all angry ballads aimed at this gentleman. Interestingly, she worked on a number with a number of producers, but the best known is Rick Rubin, who's one of the most influential modern music producers and maybe one of the best ever. He's done rap, rock, metal, country, and Adele, oddly enough. Uh, Rubin was one of the founders of Def Jam Records. He's worked with LL Cool J, Beastie Boys, Run DMC, Metallica, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Weezer, Aerosmith, Linkin Park, Raging Against Machine, The Chicks, and Johnny Cash. So pretty good. Needless to say, this album did pretty well. 21 was number one on the Billboard charts for uh, 24 weeks, was a, which was a record. Interestingly, it was the best-selling album in both 2011 and 2012, a feat which hadn't been achieved since Thriller. She also broke Carole King's record for being the longest time an album had remained on the charts in 2007, which was five years after its release. Her album was actually on the Billboard Hot 200 charts for a decade, which was the first album by a woman to do so. The album won almost every award possible, and it launched Adele to be one of those single name artists that you know her name and who we're talking about when you say it. She also won for 25, was nominated for her album 30, but 21 remains by far her biggest album. So let's talk a little bit about the results. Who came out of this matchup? Moving on is our number one seed, Michael Jackson's Thriller, with 71% of the vote to Adele's 21, receiving 29% of the vote. Honestly, I'm kind of surprised it was that much of a blowout, but Thriller is still one of the, if not the most influential art albums of all time, so he's moving on to the final four. His opponent will come out of the ladies' bracket. 
where we have our number one seed, Carol King's Tapestry from 1972, versus our number two seed, Lauren Hill, The Miseducation of Lauren Hill from 1999. The ladies in the ladies bracket are really coming to a head here, so it's, a, it's kind of fun to see that that actually worked out. Carol King was born as Carol Klein in Manhattan in 1942. I didn't realize she was that old, which was kind of interesting to learn. She was something of a genius being promoted from kindergarten to second grade at age four, which is crazy. And it turns out that Carol King and Paul Simon actually went to the same high school and were friends. They hung out at a Jew- Jewish musicians group together, and she'd actually write songs for him early on in his career, which is kind of crazy for all you Paul Simon fans that didn't get your guy through. Uh, there you go. At least she's carrying on in spirit. In 1959, she got married to a man named Jerry Goffin at 17. She had a daughter soon afterwards. She had a day job, but they kept writing music together at night. Um, in 1960, she wrote a song called Will You Love Me Tomorrow that was performed by an all-black girls group named The Shirley's. The song hit number one was the first song to do so by a group of black women. Goffin and King decided to quit their day jobs, started writing music together. King would write the music, Goffin would write the words, and they got pretty prolific. They wrote songs Chains, which was later recorded by the Beatles, The Locomotion, Keep Your Hands Off My Baby, um, both for uh, Little Eva, Halfway to Paradise, Take Care of My Baby, on the roof, I'm into something good. One fine day, Pleasant Valley Sunday for the monkeys. Um, and the big one, You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman, which was recorded by Aretha Franklin. All throughout this period, she'd write and release song or two for herself. They never did all that well, but she kept on trying. Eventually, she and Goffin got divorced. Uh, she formed an unsuccessful group called The City, which never really did all that much, but got some attention um, after the success of Tapestry. Soon after she became friends with uh, James Taylor and Joni Mitchell, Nissan, our Discord server, was actually telling me about that and uh, how they, they, were, they were really close friends still to this day. Turns out she wrote You Got a Friend in Me and James Taylor recorded it later on. After that, she put together Tapestry and released it. The album was written and, or co-written by her. A number of new songs, but she also recorded a few of the songs that she'd written for others in her own voice. Taylor encouraged her to sing her own songs, and actually he played guitar on the album for almost all of them. On the last pod, I made a mistake of saying she didn't do much after Tapestry. That's not true. She put out 25 albums actually over her career. She was kind of all over the place, putting out albums, writing music for movies, and performing. She wrote the theme songs for the Care Bear movies for A League of Their Own, Gilmore Girls, and a number of other things. Her career's really slowed down, um, but she's 81, and I I saw that she toured Japan in 2007 with Mary J. Blige and Fergie. What a weird tour. Her opponent, number two, Lauren Hill's The Miseducation of Lauren Hill. Lauren Hill was born in 1975 in New Jersey. Fun fact, she actually went to high school with actor Zach Braff, who's famous for shows like Scrubs and a number of other movies. Also in high school, she met future bandmate Praz, Prakazel, a.k.a. Praz Michael, and his cousin Wyclef Jean, and they all started performing together. She actually had a pretty serious acting career prior to getting into recording. She was on a few soap operas and had her break, 
had a breakout role in 1993's movie Sister Act 2, where she was the main character. She sang and rapped in the movie. And I actually remember really liking this movie when I was a kid. Um, And she was definitely the best part of it. I never really put two and two together, though, that it was her. In 1994, her, uh, Praz and Jean reconnected and renamed their group the Refugees or the Fugees. In 1994, Hill, Praz, and Wyclef reconnected and renamed their group the Fugees. They said it was slang for refugee, um, but they went into a very different style of rap from what was going on at the time, trying to reflect a more positive message as opposed to to some of the gangster rap that was out at the time. Their first album, Blunted on Reality, was kind of unmemorable. However, it was their second album, the score, that really put them on the map, and it was released in 1996. The album peaked at number one on the charts and was in the top 10 for about a year and a half after that. Its singles, Killing Me Softly, Ready or Not, and Fuji La got near the top of the charts. The album sold 7 million copies in the U.S. and over 20 million around the world. However, after this album, oddly enough, the group broke up. John blamed it on his and Hill's problematic relationship saying uh, he was getting married, but they had kept on dating, so he had to get away from her. Um, The three of them started working on solo projects. Hill wrote a lot of her songs about the things that happened to her in that past year, like the group breaking up and Jean and her breaking up. One of them was about the breakup of the Fugees. The other was about the end of her relationship. There was a song about the birth of her son. She blended together songs, sounds of R&B, hip-hop, reggae, and a lot of old-timey sounding music from like the early 30s. It was really unique, and it still works super well today. She actually sold over 400 copies of her album in the first week that it was out, which is a a crazy number. This album has been called one of the greatest rap albums of all time, and it's actually on a number of lists as the greatest album, rap album of all time. It had a massive influence on the entire genre and opened the door for females that hadn't included in a genre that hadn't included a lot of females up to that point. Interestingly, a year later, she helped produce Santana's album Supernatural, which also won Grammy Album of the Year. Sadly, though, the attention kind of drove her out of the industry. She didn't really like the pressure. She didn't like the attention. She didn't like people knowing who she was and really struggled even going out in public after the success of the album. She receded from the public, turned down acting roles a number of years on. She was actually offered Lady Gaga's role in the movie A Star is Born, but decided to turn it down. She did an MTV Unplugged album a few years later, got mixed reviews, and she's never really produced another album of any kind since then, which feels like such a shame. Her mental health really kind of keeping her out of the limelight and from producing music, which she obviously was pretty good at. So let's talk about the results. Our number one, Carol King, Tapestry, 1972, versus number two, Lauren Hill, The Miseducation of Lauren Hill from 1999. With 62% of the vote, Carol King is moving into the final four and will face Michael Jackson in the next round. A one versus a one seed, not terribly surprising to see them both moving on. And now on to the soundtrack bracket, uh, where we have our number one, Rumors, from Fleetwood Mac, versus number three, from various artists, a.k.a. the Bee Gees, Saturday Night Fever. This is a battle of the 70s with 1978 for Rumors and 1979 for Saturday Night Fever. So if I said I didn't have a lot to talk about when it came to uh, Carol King, Fleetwood Mac is pretty much the polar opposite. 
like I said in the very first album, Rumors was Fleetwood Mac's 11th album. However, it was only the second album for the lineup that made the album. And it's really kind of an interesting story to walk through how they actually got to that point. It's probably becoming obvious that we, as we go through the show, I don't know a ton about older music. I like more modern stuff, but I'm learning a lot about anything made prior to 1990. And the story of Fleetwood Mac is absolutely wild. <clears throat> Should have been a hint with the fact that rumors on the cover of Fleetwood Mac's album is spelled R-U-M-O-U-R-S. That Fleetwood Mac started out primarily as a British band. I didn't know that. Drummer Mick Fleetwood, Peter Green, Jeremy Spencer, and John McVie were the original members. This lineup produced their first two albums, which had some success in 1968. They had another guitarist named Danny Kirwan, and they produced their third album. In 1970, Peter Green had a really bad LSD trip and left the band. Uh, he had some mental health issues uh, that that were he claims are driven by the drug. Spencer and Kerwin had to learn all of his parts, and at that point, Christine McVie, which was John's wife, started playing keyboard for the band. So at this point, they put out their fourth album. In 1971, while they were on tour, Jeremy Spencer went out. Uh, supposedly for a magazine, and he never returned. The band searched all over for him and found out that he had joined a religious cult. <laughs> what? It's so it's wild. Um, so they got Green to come back and play with them. He didn't rejoin the band. He just played guitar on some of the songs because he knew them. They replaced him with uh Bob Welch. They put out a couple more albums with this lineup. Again, didn't do all that great. They had they had some success, but not massive. In 1972, Danny Kerwin was drinking too much, so they fired him and replaced him with a guy named Bob Weston on guitar and Dave Walker to sing. They put out their seventh album with this lineup, but they fired Walker after that album because his vocals didn't really match up with what they were trying to do. The five remaining members of the man, band put out their eighth album, in 1973, Weston had an affair with Mick Fleetwood's wife, and the band canceled their U.S. tour, and there were rumors that they had broken up. Their manager claimed that he owned the name Fleetwood Mac, so he went out and hired a whole new band to produce shows that they had canceled, and they went on tour as Fleetwood Mac. They even played a few shows, but people f soon realized they weren't Fleetwood and Mac and they stopped showing up, which is, this is wild. I couldn't imagine this happening in the modern day. This lawsuit went on for four years. <clears throat> the four remaining members of the band, Fleetwood, the two McVees, and Welch got back together, recorded their ninth album called Heroes Are Hard to Find. It didn't do great. Welch left the band. He was frustrated after the hiatus and all the lawsuits and the poor, poor, poor performance of, their of the last album. So, if you're keeping up, at this point is when they went out and hired guitarist Lindsey Buckingham and asked him to join the band. He agreed, but he'd only join if his girlfriend, Stevie Nicks, could join as well. And that created the best-known lineup of Fleetwood Mac. In 1975, they put out their 10th album, which was self-titled, and it was a massive hit. This had songs like Over My Head, Say You Love Me, Rhiannon. 
and Landslide, and they sold 7 million copies, and it really proved the concept of what this band should have been. Under the surface, though, this band was crazy. They were all over the place. So John and Christine McVeigh were going through a divorce after she'd reportedly had an affair with a lighting crew member. Buckingham and Nix had broken up, and Nix had started having a relationship with Fleetwood. Also, Nix was going through an addiction battle and was all kind of erratic. However, during all of this, they released their 11th album, Rumors. Supposedly, the band, of the, the name of the album is because there were so many rumors circulating about their relationships and what was going on. Many of the songs on the album, like You Make Love and Fun, You Can Go Your Own Way, and Dreams are supposedly about their relationships that they had with each other. A lot of the times they would just record the music separately and then mix it together in order to make the album, which is is crazy. It just, the whole thing, it's amazing that they were able to produce something like this during all of that. <clears throat> regardless of what was going on behind the scenes, this album exploded. They sold 10 million copies of the album in the first month after its release. They sold 40 million copies worldwide. The vaunted Rolling Stones top 500 albums of all time has this one at number seven. They continued to pump out albums afterwards and remain in this remaining lineup was together for a long time. However, nothing came even close to the success of, of rumors. And it, it, it's kind of crazy to me that this group actually stayed together and kept playing after the craziness of the production of this album. Their opponent at number three is Saturday Night Fever's soundtrack, which was put together by the Bee Gees. So I'm sure a number of you know about the Bee Gees. It was made up of three brothers, Barry, Robin, and Maurice Gibb. They were originally from the UK, but eventually they moved in their teen years to Australia and they started producing music there. Um, they had some success playing resorts along the Gold Coast in Australia, but they really wanted to move back to the UK to try and really launch their music career. So they moved back in 1967. I didn't realize this, but the Bee Gees actually started out as a like a, a rock quote unquote group that kind of sounded like a knockoff of the Beatles. They sounded very similar to other pop rock bands at the era. They put out a few albums, had some success, but they eventually broke up in 1969, each trying to pursue, pursue their own solo careers. However, later in 1970, they said, all right, we miss performing together, so let's get back together. And they started making more music of that style. It had some success, but really not what they experienced later on in life. In 1975, their epiphany came. The disco era had kicked off a few years beforehand, and they decided to start making that type of music. Barry Gibb, up to this point, hadn't sang in a falsetto. He was more of the like traditional singer. But in 1975, on their first album, they put out an LP that had him singing in falsetto, had more R&B influences. And the LP was named Main Course, and it had two number one hits on it called Jive Talkin' and Nights on Broadway. They really showed them the way and how they could actually get going on a career. They put out a full album called Children of the World in 1976, which had the song You Should Be Dancing on it. And this song eventually did end up on Saturday Night Fever as well. Interestingly, the Bee Gees weren't involved in Saturday Night Fever until after the movie was in post-production. John Travolta said that during filming, he actually was dancing to Boz Skaggs and Stevie Wonder songs. 
but the producers couldn't get the rights to those songs. So they had to try and figure out what could they do. The producer, Robert Stigwood, actually went out and commissioned the Bee Gees to put together an album for the soundtrack. And according to the legend, they wrote all of the songs that went into this in a weekend. I didn't realize this, but the disco craze was actually kind of dying down in this time. It was starting to slow down, but they, the brothers said that they feel like this album actually revitalized the disco scene and extended it for another few years. When this album came out, three songs charted up to number one in the U.S., How Deep Is Your Love, Stayin' Alive, and Night Fever all went to number one. For a while, actually, Night Fever and Stayin' Alive were number one and number two on the charts, the first time two songs from one artist had ever done this. Until Thriller was released a few years later, this was the best-selling album of all time, selling over 40 million copies around the world. Interestingly, the Bee Gees were involved in a movie called Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band based on the Beatles album by the same name. They did the soundtrack for that, but it just tanked. So they didn't really they didn't really do much else great beyond this, but this album really made their name and made them a ton of money. As for the results, Rumors cannot be stopped. They got 100% of the vote again, absolutely blowing out Saturday Night Fever and winning the soundtrack bracket. In our last bracket, in the grab bag bracket, our number one seed versus our number three seed. Our number one is the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band from 1968 versus our number three seed, U2's The Joshua Tree from 1988. As for um, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Heart Club Band, so I'm not sure I need to spend a lot of time on the Beatles themselves. Everyone knows them. Everyone knows they're from Liverpool. They started the British Invasion. They put out seven albums prior to Sgt. Pepper's. They put out five more after for a total of 13 albums, and they're one of the greatest albums, uh, greatest artists of all time. Almost every one of their 13 albums reached number one, sold significant numbers, so I'm not going to spend a ton of time going through this. One thing I wasn't real sure of, and I didn't realize, was that they had actually put out four movies that were affiliated with some of their albums. A Hard Day's Night, Help, Magical Mystery Tour, and Yellow Submarine all were used as soundtracks for movies of the same name, which is, they were all very different and kind of all over the place, but just super interesting that they went that route. So interestingly, the Beatles completely stopped touring in 1966. August 29th, 1966, they performed at Candlestick Park in San Francisco, and this was the last time they ever performed together live. They claim it was because their new music going forward was going to be so grand that four guys with a guitar just couldn't do it justice. It also could have something to do with the fact that they had been on tour for four straight years that included 1,400 concert appearances around the globe. So they were probably just done with touring. They had plenty of money, plenty of songs, and they just wanted to just hang out, do drugs, and uh, make music. Sgt. Pepper's is the first of what the Beatles called their studio albums, where they really began to focus on building complex sounds involving music, producers exploring other concepts and not to mention the obvious influences of their experimentation with mind-altering drugs. Lennon, Starr, and Harrison had long been users of LSD, but before this album they convinced McCarthy to try it and this really drove them to explore the more psychedelic sounds that were prevalent throughout this album. McCarthy 
McCartney claims that he had a vision for this album while he was on a trip. And he described he was going to create an alter ego for the Beatles. And this was what the Sgt. Pepper's band was all about, was this was their alter ego. It would release them from the burdens of the touring dynamos that they were prior and allow them to really explore who they were and create new styles of music. And they really went with it. Um, The album's production really started to explore concepts of splicing music as well that wasn't really done at the time, uh, at least not in pop music. So they, they messed around with mixing in ways that hadn't been done before. They, they also spent a ton of time on the design for the art cover, including foldouts on the back and the front. They had some cutouts inside. It was extremely extravagant. I saw one stat that said the, the production of their album cover cost like 3,000 pounds, which the average one cost like 50 bucks back in the day. Um, it included a ton of pictures of modern celebrities at the time. And I know we talked about the Paul is dead conspiracy theory before, but it was supposedly Paul's funeral was what was on the cover. So they really played into all that. Needless to say, all of this worked. The album was number one for 23 weeks. It sold 2.5 million copies in the first three months after release. It was released in the summer of 1967, which was called The Summer of Love, and it really became the soundtrack for the hippie movement. Over time, it sold more than 32 albums worldwide. It was actually number one on the Rolling Stones' top 500 albums of all time, and the cultural impacts of this album continue to live on till today. So just an absolutely massive album. It's opponent, number three, U2's Joshua Tree. I didn't know a ton about U2 beforehand, so I think their history is actually incredibly interesting. U2 was actually formed in Dublin, Ireland in 1976. A kid named Larry Mullen, who was 14 at the time, put a note on his school notice board that he was looking to put together a band. Five guys showed up, and eventually three of them settled in to create a band. They went through a number of different names. Hyperdrive was one of them or something like that. Um, And they changed it a few times. And then eventually they settled on U2. A gentleman named Paul Hewson took the spot of lead singer and started calling himself Bono. A guy named David Evans was on lead guitar and went by the name The Edge. And then a guy named Adam Clayton, who didn't want a nickname, was on bass and Larry played drums. This was and still is the lineup for the band, and it's kind of crazy that they haven't made any changes over time, and they still tour with those four guys from Dublin as the band members. They got signed and started putting out a few albums in the 80s. They had a few hits like Gloria, New Year's Day, Sunday, Bloody Sunday, but they never got really successful at that point until they produced an album named Unforgettable. That is until they produced an album named Unforgettable Fire in 1984, which was really their first one to garner success. They got on the cover of Rolling Stone after that and was called The Band of the 80s, and it culminated in a Live Aid performance, which really got their name on the map and got a lot of expectations built for what U2 was going to do going forward. They released Joshua Tree in 1987, and Bono said that it was influenced by their glowing, growing love and dissatisfaction with America. They loved its wide open spaces, the beauty of nature, but they really hated the things it was doing to less fortunate countries around the world, especially in Central America at that time. They had been touring and seeing 
things that were um, just made them sad. They had been on tour for five months prior to producing it, and just the tour throughout the U.S. had had a big impact on them. While they were producing it, they had a working title called The Two Americas because they were really so focused on the two things that were going on. Bono and the Edge wrote every song on the album, and they really thought it was important to have imagery on the cover that matched the messaging that they were trying to get inside. They went to the Mojave Desert for a photo shoot, and a lot of people think that the photo shoot actually is at Joshua Tree National Park, but it's not. They actually shot it in Mojave, and they thought it was a perfect depiction of the two things they were trying to show, beauty and harshness at the same time, and they still thought the Joshua Trees were especially impactful and had a religious element to it. And it was just, it was a perfect imagery for what they were trying to get. And Bono at that point declared that was the name of the album going forward. When the album was released, it went crazy. It released, it received platinum certification in the UK within 48 hours of being released. That's a million sales in the first 48 hours. It debuted at number seven on the charts in the US, which was the highest debut in years and quickly jumped to number one. The album went on to sell 25 million copies worldwide, and our friends at Rolling Stone put this album at number 26 on the vaunted top 500 list that we've been going through. So let's get into the results. This one was way closer than I thought it was going to be. I think this one may surprise a lot of people. The Beatles win with 52% of the vote to 48% for U2's Joshua Tree. It was right down the middle on who was going to win this one. I was watching it all week, kind of saying, oh my gosh, is Joshua Tree actually going to upset the Beatles? That would have been, uh, I think, a bit of a shock. But still, after doing a little bit of research into this album, it's actually not all that shocking. But there you go. So we are now down to our final four. We have our two massive matchups. Not surprising, our four number one seeds made it through all the way back at the beginning i kind of knew this was coming just kind of looking at these four albums they had using our statistics that we used to put together the rankings there was very few th- few other albums that had the long the number of albums sold the longevity on the charts the number of weeks at number one and the rym scores that these four albums did All of them were around a four on RYM. A couple of these albums were on the number one on the charts for over 30 weeks, which is over half a year. A number of them were on the charts for over 10 years, including um, almost all of the top number ones. And most of them are on that top 500 list amongst the top 20 albums of all time. So, I mean, it really was these four that were going to come down to it. So let's talk a little bit about our matchups. First off, we are out of our brackets now. So we have Michael Jackson's Thriller from 1984 versus Carole King's Tapestry from 1972. As we know now about these artists, talk about them just the difference. Both are kind of reclusive, but it seems like Carole King is more just because she doesn't want to be in the main limelight, whereas... Michael Jackson's reclusive because he's kind of a weirdo. He was super prolific. The king of pop versus a one, not a one, I don't want to call her a one hit wonder, but one just massive album of all time, right? Like, so it's such a unique matchup and it'll be really interesting to see who comes out of that one. On the other side, we have Fleetwood Mac's Rumors from 1978 versus 
the Beatles, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band from 1968. I mean, Rumors has been a powerhouse, powerhouse in this bracket. No one's even come close to beating them yet. But now they are up against the Beatles. I mean, who's going to win that one? I mean, it's just it's two absolutely just monster matchups. Like, I, I honestly don't know who's going to win. I like I think anyone uh, any outcome would not surprise me. Thriller versus Rumors. Okay. Carol King versus Rumors. Okay. Thriller versus Sgt. Peppers. Yep. That makes sense. Carol King versus Sgt. Peppers. Yeah, I could totally see that. So it'll be really interesting to see what y'all think this week. Um, I'm excited to see what y'all have to say. Make sure to vote by noon central time on June 1st next week. For next week, when we get to the albums, we'll doing a bit of a review of all the albums and kind of diving into each of the songs, see who wrote what, how it actually did, what it was about. As I say every week, please come join the community on Discord and chat. There's a few active members that are discussing music and we're having a lot of fun getting to know each other and what you like. If you could give the podcast a, a like or a review on the platform, that would be a huge help. With that, thank you so much for listening. As I say every week, it's been so much fun to kind of see this taking off. I'm learning a ton. I feel like this uh, is just getting started. So I really appreciate your participation. And remember, you may not like the results, but you can't argue with the process. If you don't like how things are going, the only way to change it is to invite more of your friends with similar music tastes to have them vote. And most of all, don't forget to enjoy the madness. The madness.